Aloha, and welcome to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. Today, Pastor Ralph brings part two of How to Make Loving More Fun. And now let's join Pastor Ralph. Well, he goes on and talks about people falling for sin. We're not going to read the verses, but verses uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, uh, get into this business of, of, of eating the forbidden fruit. That, you know, we, we all are aware of evil in the world. And we are aware that there are some people that are so evil that the only answer that really speaks to the evil is that they're possessed by a devil. They're possessed by a demon. Well, here you have the story of the serpent and the woman, and the only answer to that is here's an animal that's possessed of Satan himself. And, and the devil comes along to this woman and says to her, did God really say you can't eat any of the fruit of this garden? She says, no, he didn't say that. He said we could eat any of it, just not from this one tree. He said we would die if we eat from that one tree. You won't die. You'll become like God. You'll know what God knows. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And certainly, the day that you rebel against God is the day that you understand morality and the difference between good and evil. God had protected these people, and suddenly they're in this position where now they're ashamed of themselves. The scripture says they're ashamed of their nakedness. They try to hook fig leaves together to cover up their nakedness. And how often that's the case with us, that we're running away from God, we're mad at God, we've got all these excuses, we're hiding ourselves from someone who truly can know us and know what we're all about, and they're hiding from God. And, and so God says, oh, you ate the fruit, huh? And, and then, and then he pronounces a curse. He says, because of rebellion in the world, because you've sinned against me, there's going to be a curse. And you can read about it. It starts out in verse 16. And basically he says to the woman, you'll bear children with intense pain and suffering. He goes on and tells the man in verse 17 that because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit I told you not to eat, I placed a curse on the ground. And all your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it going to be difficult. Life is painful. Life has got problems because of the curse of sin. But notice this part in verse 16, the last part of verse 16. He's saying to the woman, though your desire will be for your, toward your husband, he will be your master. Though your desire will be for your husband, he will be your master. Now there's two ways of translating that passage, and we're not sure which one's right, but both of them will really get you down the road. There's one way that says, your desire will be toward your husband, which will sort of mean like this. You'll be married, but you'll be kind of lonely. You wish that you really had intimacy of communication and of feeling and of sharing with your husband, and he'll rule over you somehow. There's another way of reading it that says, when it says your desire will be to your husband, it will, that said, would say you, you, you will want to control your husband, but he'll be your master. Have you ever heard the term male chauvinism? Have you ever heard the term radical feminism? You know, go look up those two words on the internet. If you look up radical feminism, you'll find out what all the angry men are saying about women. And if you look up male chauvinism, you'll find out what all the angry women are saying about men. And don't bother to do it because it's a painful experience. I did. It's like, oh my gosh. But here's the deal. The relationship that should be second only to the relationship we have with God got broken because of rebellion against God. Got broken. It doesn't work. Think about it. You, you, you turn the radio on, and if you turn, it's not a news station, it's not a sports station, and it's not a Christian station. It's usually playing music. And what's the subject of virtually every song that you hear sung on secular radio is love. It's love. It's all about love. And, and, and you know what? Everybody is looking for something, and only people that are finding it are the people that have a relationship with the Lord that makes it possible for them. Remember last week we talked about the difference between liking, which means 
You turn me on, you do something for me. And loving, which means I surrender myself to you. I'm willing to lay my life on the line for you. And what a vast difference there is. Only God could do the transformation that you heard in this testimony this morning where somebody one day is saying, I can't find one good thing to say about my husband. And the next day is saying, I can't find one bad thing to say about my husband. Only God can change our hearts that much. And it's all rooted in what Jesus Christ did for us on that cross. I want you to open your Bible to Galatians, the third chapter in the New Testament. If you thumb through the New Testament and you find Acts, go Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. Acts, Romans, and Corinthians are all pretty long books. They're easy to find. Galatians is a little short one in here. Galatians chapter 3. And in verse 13 it says, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. When Jesus came into the world, God's Son came into the world and did not sin against God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We all turn against God. We're to be separated from God for eternity. Jesus never did that. He laid his life down as a sacrifice to pay and to buy our freedom. That word rescued, I use the word redeemed from the curse up here. The, here here's, the, here's the word redemption. I, I just finished reading uh, a wonderful book. I like to read history. It's the, it's the history of the life of John Adams, the second president of the United States. And he and Thomas Jefferson were very intertwined in their life. And so as you read about John Adams, you continually read about Thomas Jefferson. Adams was a Bible-believing Christian who really stood against slavery way before the Civil War. Thomas Jefferson was a man who believed in a God, although today we try to make him say he didn't, but he, when you read his writings, he believed in God. And he actually believed in Jesus. But he was from the South, and he held slaves. At Jefferson's death, they, to help pay off his debts, they, paid, they sold 103 people that were his slaves. You've all heard the Sally Hemings story, you know, children by a slave woman. In, in those days a person could be sold like a car. They could put you on the auction block and there's a piece of paper like the pink slip on the car that says this person owns this human being. And there was this hard work going on against slavery, coming out of the north, coming out of New England, where the Protestant churches were strong. These Christians were, were writing stuff that they were doing. They were helping runaway slaves uh, go to freedom in Canada. But one thing that they were doing is they'd go around to churches and they'd take offerings. And they'd raise money, and then they'd go to the south, and they'd go to slave auctions, and they would buy slaves. And then having bought a whole family of slaves, they would take that piece of paper, and they signed their name off on it, and sign the, the new owner of the slave is, this, is the now former slave himself. And they were redeeming people from, from the slave market of sin. Do you know that that activity still goes on in the United States? There are seven nations in this world, small countries, mostly in the Middle East, all of them Islamic countries, that still practice slavery. And many of the people that they hold as slaves are Christian people in those countries. And Christians in the United States a number of years ago, about a decade ago, began organizing themselves, raising cash, going into these countries and buying slaves and, and setting them free, giving them their freedom. During the, the Clinton administration, other governments began to make a big stink out of that. And that became an embarrassment to the American State Department that we were doing one of the things that had made our country strong in the beginning. But this idea of being redeemed out of the slave market of our sins, that's what Jesus did when he hung on that cross. He exchanged his life for our life so that we can go free. And we don't have to live lives of degradation. We don't have to live lives of almost having our hopes met. We can have our dreams met. And we can be the men and women that God wants us to be. And we can have fun in our love relationships. We can learn to love each other. It goes on and says, 
in, in verse 14, through the work of Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles. Now, the Galatian Christians are all Jewish people. And they see everybody else in the world as a Gentile. And so Paul's writing to these Jewish Christians, and he's saying, God has blessed the Gentiles too. He's blessed the rest of us with the same blessing he promised to Abraham. And we Christians, all of us, receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Underline those words, receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. You know, some of you got in a little bit late for worship, and you missed what we were doing this morning as we were singing and praising the Lord. And we're singing some of these wonderful songs and they touch your heart you know you're you're singing to god really prayers and something happens inside of you it's palpable you can sense the presence of god in your heart well god wants that to happen not just for a half an hour in church on a, on a sunday morning god wants that to happen like it happened to brandy in the car that you're driving along and you're thinking about what you're thinking about and there's the presence of the lord there and he's saying don't worry about this i got you covered over here or he's telling you that decision that you're just about to make that's a wrong decision you know, I had an experience like this not too long ago where a decision was presented to me and it looked good on paper. It looked really fine. But something is happening in the back of my mind and it's that voice I've, I've come to learn is the Lord, you know. And the Bible says when you start to turn to the right or the left, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, no, this is the way, walk in it. And so I'm getting all ready to agree to this thing that I see that looks so well on paper. But this little voice is, that I've, I come to know is the Holy Spirit is saying to me, no, wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. And I waited, and, 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 and two things happened. The offer was withdrawn. The, 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 the person that was offering to do something now said, no, I don't want to do that. And then later on, I found something else out about the person and the situation that would have totally disqualified it from working. The deal couldn't have worked. But the Holy Spirit warned me of that without telling me the details. God wants us to learn to live by the leading of the Holy Spirit. When we accept what Jesus did on that cross for us, the Spirit of God comes into our life, and it's the Spirit of God that can take a young woman and, and in, in 15 seconds change her from somebody that detests her husband and makes her into somebody that now loves her husband and com completely sees life from a different paradigm. Are, are you there? Sin is selfishness. When we allow God, who is selfless, to come into our life, He changes us and He transforms us and He makes it possible for us to have this ideal of romantic love that we talk and we think so much about. Cross the page to verse 26 where I, I want to talk about us being equals in Christ. He says, so you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You don't become a child of God by becoming a good person. You don't become a child of God by deciding to keep a bunch of religious rules and, and trying to impress God by doing the right thing. You become a, a child of God simply by going, I know you're there. I don't understand all about you. I don't even totally understand this business of Jesus on the cross. But it makes enough sense to me that I'm willing to put my trust in you. I'm willing to say, God, I'll let you run the show here. See, the exact opposite of sin is saying, God, I'll trust you enough that I want to live under your leadership and I accept what your son Jesus did on that cross. It says, now we became children of God through faith in Christ. Write the word adopted in there because the Bible very clearly means it's that we're adopted children of God. We've been adopted into his family. Now we've got some growing to do. We've got some changing to do. We've got some stretching to do. We're going to become like our older brother, Jesus. And that's exactly what it says in verse 27. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have been made like him. You become like Jesus. You start to have the nature of the Son of God inside of you as you embrace the Lord as your Savior. And notice it says this happens through baptism. You know, baptism has become something that many American Christians think of, oh, that's some old tradition. I, I'm just not into that old church tradition. The Bible clearly declares baptism as a, as a powerful spiritual statement. 
that when you stand up and are publicly identified with the death of Jesus Christ, his baptism, the Bible tells us, the water is symbolic of the grave, his grave. And when you're going under that water, you're saying, I identify with Jesus and what he's done, and then you're changed to become like Jesus. You heard from Brandy Church this morning. A year ago, last March, we baptized her. And I remember this very rough, tough, hard-looking young woman. And I've been watching for a year. I never knew this whole story until just this weekend. But I've been watching for a year. Uh, I watched her husband struggle that she'd become a Christian and he wasn't. I watched him sit in church and do this at me for a long time. Uh, I, but I watched him then get saved. And I've watched them change. And you saw this very soft, gentle person today. What is this all about? Well, it says, when we have been united in Christ in baptism, we've been made like him. You start to become like Jesus. And so there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. All those contests are gone. He was saying Jew and Gentile because he's speaking to Jewish people that didn't like Gentiles. He would say to us, there's no longer Africans, there's no longer Filipinos, there's no longer Chinese, there's no longer white guys. We're all one together in Jesus. It doesn't matter how, I mean, God made us to be unique and to be different. And, and what has turned itself into the ugliness of racism is the, is the glorious hand of God making a rainbow out of his people. But we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. You're different than me, so I don't like you. We're one in Christ. We belong together because of what Christ has done in our heart. He talks about there's no longer slave or free. There's, a, there's two passages in the Bible that ultimately, 2,000 years ago, undermined and overthrew slavery in America and England. Two passages. One is in Ephesians, where the Apostle Paul writes, and he tells a master, you treat your slave as if he was Jesus Christ. See, they couldn't, there were so few Christians in the first century, they couldn't overthrow the Roman system and all that. They didn't have any political power. But they had the power of love. And, and he says, if you're a master you treat, and you're a Christian, you treat your slave as if he was Jesus. And if you're a slave, well, you work for your master as if he was Jesus. And then there's this other little letter that Paul wrote to a guy named Philemon. You'll find it at the end of the New Testament. And Paul writes to Philemon and he says, Hey, Philemon, my friend, you're my son in the faith. I brought you to know the Lord. You owe me your very spiritual life. You wouldn't live for eternity in heaven with God if it wasn't for me. I'm your spiritual dad. And Philemon, by the way, you're a slaveholder. And one of your slaves ran away. His name is Onesimus. And I ran into Onesimus. And I led him to the Lord. Now I'm his spiritual father. Do you know, Philemon, what that makes the two of you? Brothers. And he says, I'm returning Onesimus who is terribly valuable to me, to you. But he doesn't say I'm returning him as your slave. See, Philemon had the right under Roman law to execute that slave for running away. He could kill him with his bare hands and he would not be held liable for murder. He could beat him, he could humiliate him, he could do anything. Paul says, here's what you do. You accept him as your brother. He's no longer your slave. In Christ, there's no room for that. You know, as employers, we're supposed to treat our employees with love and respect and be looking out for them. As employees, we ought to be praying for the boss to run the business well so we'll still have a paycheck. That, that, that goes away in Jesus. We have the ability. You see how this, I told you this message would spread beyond just romantic love. This fits with all of the relationships in life. But then he says there's neither male nor female. What does that mean? That God's into unisex? Not at all. What it means is there doesn't have to be competition and fighting and struggling and a power struggle going on inside of a marriage. You know, I talked to a couple this week. They were in my mini church, and I've known them for, for a long, long, long time. Way back when I was in California, I knew these people. They, they got saved in our church, and, and uh, they, they've been married for 28 years. 
And they told me about their wedding day. He's a lawyer. On his wedding day, he, sur he surprises his bride-to-be with a prenuptial agreement and tells her, sign it. And she's going, all the guests are already in the church. I don't know if I'm going through with this thing at all. I might just not show up for the wedding. She's, she, she can be a tough person. But she decides she'll go ahead and sign it. So she signs it, and they get married, and then they leave the wedding reception. They go to where they're going on their honeymoon, and the, they got the document in their possession, and she tears it into a million pieces. <laughs> it never saw a court clerk. And these two people are off to a fiery start in this relationship. Now, both have been married before. It's remarriage. It's Los Angeles County, where 80% of remarriages end in divorce. They have both found the Lord because her ex-husband, who was suffering from Vietnam veteran syndrome and had gotten into drugs and was a heroin addict, had found the Lord in our church, and the Lord had set him free from heroin. And he had changed. And he got to preaching at him, and probably preaching a little too much, but in between it all, they could see the one thing they couldn't deny was the power of God had changed this man's life. And so two years into their marriage, they showed up in our church, and they accepted the Lord as their Savior. And what they were telling us about was this in our Bible study the other night in our mini-church. They said that they were in a mini-church for, oh, seven or eight years with the same people. And uh, we ran mini-churches a little bigger in California. They said there would always be, oh, 10 to 14 people showing up to the mini-church. But there was about 10 couples that were the core of that group that were together at that time. Now, this is Los Angeles. This is where 60% of all first-time marriages end in divorce. Now, these people don't, they, they've all moved to different parts of the country or L.A. County or whatever, but they're all in touch with each other. They know each other. And they're going out of the core group in that mini-church. There's not one single divorce. The odds in that county are, 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 are six against four that you're going to have a divorce. There's not one single divorce. There's been ups and downs. There's been life lived. But they're saying to us, we found the Lord. We found what it means to surrender our heart to the Lord and let Him change us and make us into one. And we went from this very sparky beginning to having this incredible love relationship that we have with each other right now. Does that make sense to you? That's what God wants. God wants you to have love. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to have somebody that you can always rely on, somebody that you can count on, somebody that's going to be there with you all the way into your old age, somebody that's going to be supportive for you. You know, my wife and I have been married for 36 years, and I found a new thing that we like to do together. This is really weird. And you're gonna, some of you are going to laugh at me. I hope I can really communicate this. But when my wife was going through chemotherapy and she would get sick and nauseous for seven days at a time, she was always worrying about how I was eating. Now, we had gone to the store beforehand, before she took any chemo, and we bought all the frozen foods because I'm pretty good at peanut butter sandwiches and that's about as far as it goes. And so I got all this stuff, you know, that I can get out of the freezer and I can survive on. And there's always the golden arches. But this woman, who's in this situation where food is revolting to her, is, is worrying about me and how I'm eating and, and, and wanting to make this for me and wanting to make that for me. And she's just in terrible condition. And I want you to understand that a part of love is respect. And I've always respected my wife. My wife is such an incredible person. But the, the respect level went up hugely during that time. Well, it got me thinking about something. You know, I'm one of these kind of old school guys. I built her a kitchen with my own hands. Now, you can cook food with your hands, you know? <laughs> one of those deals. And I always think, 
What a drudgery it must be to have to plan a menu all the time and figure out how to make other people happy with what they're going to eat and then to go in there and spend a lot of time cooking it and a precious little bit of time eating it. And then when you're done eating it, you've got to go clean up. And, and that's always kind of bothered me, especially the cleanup bothers me. I think, what a drudgery to have to go in there after dinner. You had a good time at dinner and you've got to go in there and do that. And so something happened in the midst of this process. And, and you know, she's been through radiation, which makes her very tired. And so I, I started just going in there and helping do the dishes, you know, and, and uh, just put things away and put everything, seal things back up, put them in the refrigerator. And, and I know some of you guys are sitting here going, oh, no, Pastor, I put up with a lot from you. Why are you saying this? <laughs> it's become like dating. It's this little partnership thing that we do. Now I'm going in there, and I help her while she's trying to set up for dinner. I can't cook a thing, but I'll, I'll try to just get things ready. And it's just, just a little bit of time that we're spending together, doing the same thing together at the same time. And it reminds me very much of what I experienced. When we were young and, and first met each other, we were in that starving student syndrome thing you do when you're a college student. We had no money. We'd just go for walks, and we'd talk. We'd get to know each other intimately. And so now we're doing this little project thing, See, what's happened is we talk at dinner, and now we're talking after dinner while we're doing this little thing, and then it carries back into the living room because now we've got a little more time to be together. She doesn't get all off distracted doing some other work, and, and we're hanging out, and, and, and then it leads to all kind of good things, you know? And uh, uh, you catch my drift? Uh, but but we're, we're, we're having fun together. And we've been at this, we've known each other for 38 years, and we're still learning new stuff. We're still learning. That's what God wants. You know, if you're a happily married person, if you learn to walk in the Spirit and let the Spirit lead, your marriage is going to become more fun. If you're living in a broken hell of a marriage and you're willing to surrender to the Lord and allow the Spirit to come and lead, He's going to make the marriage into something good. If you're dating and you've got all that insecurity and all that wondering, will this work out? Will this? Well, the best guarantee that you have of it working out is both of you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you're allowing His Spirit to lead you and guide you and as you go down that path together it merges together and it makes something very beautiful of your life. Let's pray together. God, my prayer for every person in this room this morning is that they will come to know the fullness of your love and the fullness of your Spirit. Lord, starting with your love for them and then ending up with your Spirit leading and coaching and guiding them. And Lord, this second most important of all of our relationships, that with somebody of the other sex that we love, would be, would be something wonderful, would be something sweet, would be something enduring, would be something that we could, we could be secure in all the way into our old age. God, that, that we would learn to love each other more and more and more. Not the liking thing, you do this for me, but the loving thing, I do this for you, and I'm terribly satisfied in the process. Lord, work your works in our hearts. Lord, everyone in this room has an area where they ache inside, where they wish for a little bit more. Lord, bring them home. Bring them home. Bring them home. Make loving a fun thing in our lives. Lord, there's those of us that are lonely. There's nobody in our life, and we're sitting here hearing this message thinking, well, this applies to someone else. Lord, my prayer is bring someone into that person's life, someone to love, someone to be loved by. God, bless us. 